Hi, Alex from the Lorax here, with a quick note to say that these episodes on Warhammer 40k were recorded in 2022, before the launch of the 10th edition of the game. So, if we have any information that is outdated due to the launch of the new edition, sorry, blame our schedules. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Lorax. This is a podcast where we take beloved sci-fi, fantasy, or fictional settings and then look at them a little bit too deeply uh, into all the nooks and crannies from sociological, historical, philosophical lenses. Uh, my name is Alex and I'm joined by my good friend. Hey, I'm Khalil, or Kinko. And I'm going to apologise in advance for my slight croakiness uh, this episode. I'm recovering from Nurgle's gift, good old COVID-19. Um, so shout out to Vocal Zone if the company that makes those pastels wants to sponsor the podcast. Big fan. <laughs> Give me a call. Other pastels are available. But not as good. Uh, <laughs> um, quick shout out uh, as well. This is actually uh, part three in a multi-part series exploring the lore of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Um, part one dealt with the Imperium of Man and its fasci overtones. And part two with well, the Eldar. Or guess. just tones, yeah. <laughs> and part two was about the Eldar and the Orcs. Um, you don't necessarily have to listen to those first, but if you want a little bit of extra context, if you're not sure about the world or the setting, uh, then perhaps they might be a good place to start. If not, and you're just here to talk about the Tau, or not talk, but listen, I mean, you can talk, but people might look at you strange, talk about the Tau and the Necrons, then uh, you're in the right place, because that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, you know, we've, we've covered, like you said, we've covered the the ostensibly good guys, but actually fashy humans. We've covered the um, kind of uh, children of the old ones, psychic, latently psychic orcs and Eldar. We're talking about Necrons and Tau this time. So what what's the thread? What's the connection here? Yeah, well, those who listen to Eldar and Orcs, the episode will have uh, heard about the war in heaven. Um and we're not going to go into that in a lot of detail in this episode. So again, if you want a little bit of extra context, then go back and listen to the first part of that. Of the two we're talking about, the Necrons had a huge part in the War in Heaven. Uh, they were, in fact, the other side of the War in Heaven. Um, they are the descendants, or this actually still like, like descendants, I guess, of a species or a race called the Necron Tyr. Now, I say Tyr. Tyre? I say Tyre. Okay, we'll go with Tyre then. So, Necron Tyre. They were a species that lived, uh, depending on your source, millions or multiple thousands and thousands of years ago in the universe in a uh, horrible set of star systems um, affected by enormous cosmic radiation, horrible solar winds, uh, basically a place you wouldn't want to grow up. These people, they had very short lives. They, they, in fact, so short that their cities were essentially enormous graveyards where the living were surrounded by the tombs of the dead continuously. Uh, just not a, not a great time. So understandably, these guys wanted to break out from their initial star systems and put a lot of their, their efforts into um, getting back out into space where perhaps you're not being blasted by cosmic radiation all the time. And kind of the story, the theme that runs through the Necron story and the Necron Tear story is one of sort of bad luck, really. Because not only do they start off in this horrible star system, which gives them horribly short lives and irradiated bodies, as soon as they actually uh, break out with the help of uh, three sort of, I guess, uh, 
oligarchical uh, leaders, also kind of semi-religious leaders called the, the Triarch or the Triarch. Again, pronunciation is going to be all over the place this episode. Oh, um, no, we're mispronouncing these made-up names. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of this fancy sci-fi stuff is based on, led by the, the Triarch, and who themselves are led by someone called the Silent King, who's so-called because uh, he's so cool that he doesn't speak to any he doesn't speak himself and only speaks to the other two of the triarch um, oh yeah so he's, he's there you know wearing sunglasses during the daytime yeah and kind of you know ostent like ostentatiously blanking people yeah he's the funds in a fridge mm-hmm. you know he's pretty cool um so these guys break out from their star systems um quite understandably looking for help and they meet the old ones who so you may remember the old ones from last episode they are incredibly ancient highly intelligent psychic kind of frog people space gods yeah something along those lines yeah uh so they meet the old ones who at this point in the timeline had sort of conquered mortality no big deal uh now effectively immortal and kind of the next frontier was sort of like hey guys you are more massive immortal beings who have who uh, have lived forever. You Could passing, you that, you're passing yeah. that around? You want to pass that around to us? You know, we we don't live very long, and the lives we do have are horrible. Uh, and the old ones say no, um, which is nice. Very chill. Very chill of them. Yeah, no one no one likes a hog. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but the because of the expansion, the Net Frontier do actually expand into their own sort of empire. They break out from their original systems. They do a little bit. The galaxy is big enough for a lot of people. But because of that, they have a lot of uh, devastating civil wars. Uh, it's not really... Um, what are they fighting over? Well, that's the thing. It's never really actually explained. It's more... I think it's more just sort of a, a sort of tale of entropy. That basically, once you get to a certain point, people will start having fights with each other um, over resources and things like that. In it, politics and stuff. Yeah, I think it's sort of... Because of what happens later on with the Necrons, because they're all split into dynasties, I think that's just a pretext of being like, this is why we can have different factions within... Uh, the Necron. Mm-hmm. So they have these civil wars, uh, and they, the Triarch and the Silent King realize the only way to band people together um, in a lovely display of 20th century political thinking is to have a war with the outsiders. Which has never gone wrong. No, never, ever in history. It's always been fantastic. Don't Google it. No. <laughs> no, don't Google it. That's, that's the, exactly. That's the last thing you should do because. That's the Lorax promise. <laughs> Yeah, that's the strap line for this podcast. <laughs> don't, don't Google don't it. Don't Google it. Don't at me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the Necrontier decide that the old... Who who do we have grievance with? Oh, it's these big space frogs who won't let us live forever. To be fair, it's a pretty legitimate grievance. If you, if you, you know, if you drag your radiation blasted ass over to these, you know, immortal space frogs and... They refuse to help you, even though it's entirely within their power. I, you know, I, I'm not mad at that. I, I think that's a very legitimate reason to hate someone. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I'm not saying it's a legitimate reason to kill them, but yeah, I mean, it's a legitimate. You know, if, I think most people can sort of say, "Hey, I, if so, if you if you meet someone dying on the road, and like all you need to do is give them like, oh, or someone who's, for example, having an epileptic fit, or." someone who's having a diabetic reaction and all they need is an injection from an EpiPen or like taken to a nice quiet place and given water and looked after and you go, nah. Yeah. Nah. I've got somewhere to be. Yeah. <laughs> or not even that. I'll just stand here and watch you. Yeah. Like, true. I'm, yeah. Is I'm, it, is it I'm imagining like, I'm imagining a kind of 
a a kind of uh, an anthropomorphic psychic space frog uh, lying back on a sun lounger as this like uh, kind of space ancient Egyptian looking dude kind of with his radiation blasted flesh sloughing off his bones kind of crawling towards the sun lounger as the old one just sits there with a cocktail just kind of no I don't think I will yeah exactly so that's the war in heaven and again uh, if you want to know more about that then check out the first half hour to 45 minutes of episode 2 where we go into it in a lot more detail but suffice it to say the Necrontier actually had better technology than the old ones but the old ones controlled the webway which was a series of tunnels and passages through real uh, bypassing real space allowing the old ones to appear wherever they wanted to uh, basically whenever they wanted to so the war was kind of technology versus psychic ability kind of in a, in a broad stroke. Yeah, yeah. So one eventually what happens is uh, the Necrontier are forced back, so they, their empire is overtaken by the old ones, and they're forced back into their old horrible home systems where everything's bad and everyone's having a bad time. And this starts more civil wars, because at this point they've realised that, oh, they've all banded together and it's not worked. So back to the old good system. Of and also they've realised that there's so much, there's so much beyond their home world that is better so there's there's stuff that's worth fighting for control yeah. of you know? yeah and it's at this point when the necrontier are sort of at their most desperate that they uh depending on the source you look at they either discover or they are approached by um sort of suprastellar beings and creatures called the katan hungry space ghosts hungry space ghosts beings of pretty much pure energy who basically w- float through space and drink the power from suns well, they started off drinking the power from suns and stars. Um, and this, you know, it's a bountiful source of energy, but it's not very flavoursome. And at some point in their history, it's not super clear when, the Catan, they discover the taste of the energy of life, the energy of living things. And it's not quite as, like, bountiful as the energy from a star, Mm. But there's quite a lot of it. It's distributed around the place, but it tastes fucking delicious. And they become totally, almost addicted to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, so it's it's either, it's either whether the, it's either the Necrontier discover a Catan via a probe they send into a sun or the Necrontier approach them directly. But um, the, essentially what happens is that the, uh, the Catan, um, they, convince the Silent King, uh, who's known as, uh, again, pronunciation, here we go, uh, Zarech, or Cizarech, we'll go with Zarech. I think Zarech. Um, So one of the Katan, known as the Deceiver, I wonder what he's all about, um, convinces Zarech that uh, the Katan have always themselves been at war with the Old Ones and proposes an alliance between them and the Necrontit. It's one of those ironic nicknames, like Little John. Well, like Little John from Robin Hood, not like Little John, the, the, <laughs> the rapper, because uh, he is actually quite a little. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, the deceiver, who now in my head is Little John, the rapper. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they helps broker an alliance between the, the Necrontier and the Catan. The Necrontier use their technology to build uh, essentially physical bodies for the Catan to inhabit and which enables them to move into the physical realm in a more concrete way and basically start kicking ass and taking names because they are... Kicking ass and taking life energy. Yeah, exactly. As we mentioned, these are huge 
stellar beings that have almost limitless power. Using the Catan, uh, the Necrontier actually start to be uh, beat back the old one. And in fact, the Catan also start to convince the Necrontier there's a path to immortality that they've always wanted, that not they don't necessarily have to steal from the old ones themselves. And it's not just immortality, it's also being impervious to the ravages of their world. So it's not just extending their lifetime in terms of time, it's what if you had a body that didn't fall apart when it was blasted with all sorts of solar radiation? Yeah, but unfortunately, uh, there's a catch. There's always a catch. Um, and again, a theme throughout this podcast, we're squeezing a lot of lore into, into small pieces here, but the uh, the nobility, because there's always a nobility in these things, of the ne- the Necrontier decide this is for the best. Uh, only, I think, I believe in my head, I can't remember his name. Um, Got to put some respect on him. We'll find out later. But there's one Necron who says, this doesn't sound like a great idea. Um, but he they they this uh, results in what is called the uh, the Great Biotransference, um, where huge industrial sized factories appear across the Necron homeworlds, Necron tier homeworlds, I should say, uh, in which their people, not exactly willingly, mostly willingly, but not all of them, march in and have pretty much their souls, flesh, essence stripped away and replaced with a metal called Necrodermis. Well, because like the, you know, the, the large print on the, on the deal is that the Catan say we can transfer Using this technique, we can transfer your mind and your consciousness into a, a lovely, shiny metal body that doesn't age, doesn't get tired, doesn't get radiation sickness. It'd be great. But because, you know, there's always a power structure and, you know, there's, there's um just like with any new technology, rich people get the good version, poor people get the version that doesn't quite work as it was meant to. And so the with the with the more powerful Necrons, they get the like top of the range, uh the the bodies that and, and, and the circuitry that can really hold a humanoid consciousness. And so they retain their emotions and their personalities. But the rank and file get much simpler versions, you know, they're the hard drive is a bit smaller, processor's not great, and so it can it can hold the the kind of the 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 functions to keep it essentially kind of alive in inverted commas, but it loses a lot of the kind of what you might call the soul, what you know the 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 ability to take pleasure in things, the dreams, the aspirations, the the, the really the deeper parts of the personality, and so they become, you know, less recognizable as people and more as kind of automata. Yeah, exactly. So, it, it, which it, isn't helped by the fact that their body looks like a metal skeleton. No, no. The basically the the strong willed in air quotes, uh, basically the rich people um, retain most of their memories um, and have sort of the like microscop the microscopic version of sort of feelings. Um, and sensations they still can't do things like eat or really enjoy any kind of you know sens- pleasures that we would associate with life they don't have visible genitals <laughs> yeah if we boil it down to, to one no no I'm, just, I'm, I'm not trying to boil it down I'm just saying you know one aspect of that 
you know, um, let's say they're safe from Slanesh. <laughs> and in and, fact, unless they've got some kind of, you know, hidden USB port that we don't know about. <laughs> and in fact, that's something we'll, we'll be touching on in a bit as well, because when you're nothing but a, uh, a husk of metal with the fragments of a soul hard-coded into engrams in your code... You that's have... called a PhD student. <laughs> you have no signature in the warp. You have no... Uh, chaos cannot affect you. We'll talk about that in a moment. But So not only does Sarek, the Silent King, uh, realise he done goofed, um, now, but he also realises that he has trillions of automata available to be c- commanded at a whim. So these... The oligarchy, the strong-willed ones who become the the Necron sort of commanders, uh, they can control all of their underlings sort of through a sort of gestalt consciousness because they're all interconnected with each other. And so basically the Necrontiers start kicking ass again. They start wiping out the old ones. Uh, they break into the webway and become almost uh, in masters of the galaxy. And bear in mind, this is while they're still working with and fighting alongside the Star Gods, the Katan. However... When the old ones go into retreat, the Catans sort of run out of, uh, as we, as Kinko mentioned earlier, enemies and also um, physical forms on which to sate their lust for hunger and things like that. Uh, their sustenance, so the tasty sustenance anyway. Uh, and they turn on each other, um, because why wouldn't you? They decide that the next tastiest thing after mortals is other Catan and start uh, uh, attacking each other. You are what you eat. Exactly. And this is when the old ones come back. There's a lot of this, this war swings dramatically one side to the other across millennia, basically. Uh, and the old ones come back with some new pet projects who uh, we talk about in episode two, essentially. Uh, among those pet projects are the Eldar and the Orcs. Just... As well as the space orangutans and all the other. Yeah, exactly. All, all these other things. They, they create uh, a series of races that are in, in tune with the immaterium, the warp, the uh, parallel dimension to of psychic magic of psychic magic to the to the to the real world and all of these creatures uh, work with the old ones to try and beat back the Necrontier, which they do they start winning and they start winning hard again it swings all the way back again but the problem is all this uh, psychery magic fuckery in in tune with the immaterium and the warp actually causes the two worlds to sort of blur and collide a little bit and basically all the creepy crawly horrors. Uh, demons from the dungeon dimensions all this kind of horrible eldritch beings break into real space and start attacking everyone in sight and they also break break into the webway as well yes. so even the secret space tunnels that the old ones travel in are all full of demons and monsters yeah while the, and and amongst all this chaos the old ones basically are uh defeated scattered uh ruined because all these creatures are psychically linked so these horrors from the warp, which are themselves psychic beings, are powerful against these other creatures, but not so much against the Necrontier, who are now creatures of, of metal. And have never really been big into psychic stuff anyway. Yeah. So what this actually does is that the Catan, trying to re-establish the barrier between the Immaterium and real space, uh, set up a huge project to shut off the real world from the warp, which is something that plays a huge role at the end of the 34th... Uh, 34th? Plays a huge role at the smart. end... Smart. The 34th of the, smart. The 34th millennium. <laughs> uh, <laughs> plays a huge role at the end of the 41st millennium um, with Cadia, which... Do you we'll, want to do one more take? No, no, that's fine. We'll, we'll leave this in. It's better this way. Um, I learned my lessons. Um, we'll touch on that probably when we talk about chaos. But while the Catan are busy with this project, uh, our boy Sarek um, decides that he is going to turn on them. Um, because also, but I just want to mm. touch on the on the Catan um, 
the Blackstone Pylon project yes. that, we, that we, we just mentioned. Basically, they they want to construct these giant obelisks of this certain kind of rare black mineral, which creates a, a kind of a zone around it in which the boundary between uh, the real world and the warp can't be crossed. And so basically it's a chaos proof zone and it also blocks psychic activity. So this is not just, you know, Oh, we want to put up some walls. This is the Catan being like, this is our chance to cement our hold on the galaxy. Because if you can, you know, if you can block psychic activity, you can, cripple any remaining old ones that might want to come back the eldar and the orcs are going to be much weaker and the uh you're not going to get you know warp creatures and chaos coming in so essentially you're really cementing the katan and necrons as the supreme force in the galaxy yeah so that's the katan's big plan while also trying to eat each other it's kind of it's a wishy-washy where this bit crosses over really in the lore so Sarek, who sort of realises that he's been tricked... Uh, I, I was tricked by the Deceiver? <laughs> what? Um, decides that it's time for the Necrons here to take... Not take back what's theirs, but sort of... In the sort of revenge and also uh, a re-establishment of their dominance as a species. That is, remove themselves from this sort of They slavery. got monkey-pawed and they are pissed about it. Yeah, so, you know, what is... I mean, there's a. It's very hard to boil this down into a very uh, simple way of putting it, but in a very cool kind of manifest. Well, not manifest destiny. That's a loaded phrase. But like a, you know, taking charge of their destiny, they start fucking throwing all of their huge technological abilities and advances into. Uh, dest- they realize they cannot completely destroy the Katan because the Katan are essentially well star gods. Um, so what they do is they fucking shatter them, they throw huge weapons, they, th- they create these giant spacecraft called Blackstone Fortresses and hurl them at these creatures until they're shattered into thousands of pieces and then they take those psychic shards, well, not really psychic, but those shards of these beings and scatter them throughout the galaxy so that these creatures cannot be put back together again. Well, some of them they scatter. Some of them they put in uh, what are called Tesseract Vaults, which are kind of multi-dimensional Pokeball. And so... You know the the shards of the Catan that get captured, they become some of the most powerful weapons in the Necrons' arsenal because essentially you've got a fragment of a god in a little box. Yeah, it's a very <coughs> yeah, it's a very cool sci-fi Pokemon kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I and it's a very cool aspect of the Necrons' like lore is the fact that I think originally there was something in the lore where the Catan were still sort of masters of the Necrons. And then they they made the very cool decision to make it. The Necrons just turned around and went, actually, no. You've activated my trap card. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> to to blast apart a whole race of giant gods and then turn them into Pokemon for your own use is very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue is, although the Necrontier succeed in this, uh, the galaxy is still absolutely convulsing with, with psychic matter, psychic beings. These new creatures that the old ones created are proliferating across the galaxy. So the Necrons decide... And the Necrons have, you know, have weakened themselves a lot through Civil War and fighting the old ones and fighting the Catan. Yeah. And so uh, Sarek sort of decides their their next goal after that, you know, I mean, pretty great, well done smashing apart your your gods and turning them into your own personal uses. Uh, But 
the next goal is let's get back to what what we were uh it's all this great you know being um these terminator like beings that are uh, so advanced technology is great and all, but we really miss being <laughs> sentient creatures. And, uh, you know, he feels like he's betrayed his entire race of people, quite understandably, and decides that right now isn't the time that they can re- uh, reverse the biotransference. So uh, with a decree to the noble families that are in charge of all the different dynasties of Necrontia, uh, Sarek says, now's the time for us to all go to sleep until... The, the psychic craziness that's going on dies down and until there's enough biomass basically in the world that we can use to try and rebuild ourselves. It's the um, the 40k equivalent of, you know, we'll go to the pub and wait for it all to blow over. Yeah, and they, they all descend in their, in their various worlds, they descend into huge catacombs beneath the earth and essentially go to sleep. And so these are, you know, the old Necron homeworlds become what are called tomb worlds. And millions and millions of years pass... They get mostly forgotten about, um, and you know some of these planets actually get settled by other you know types of creature, whether it's humans or orcs or and this kind of um, this settling of the tomb worlds often happens while the great sleep is still going on, but sometimes it causes that tomb world to start to reawaken. But the the reawakenings have. They're a bit out of sync with each other, yeah. right? Yeah. Because the 60 million years that they're meant to be going to sleep for is about 60 million years before the 41st millennium, right? Yeah. Yeah, so they, I think essentially in my... Well, this is sort of headcanon, really, but like, I think they sort of have a, a kill... Not, not a kill switch, but like a switch in their brain just is like, oh, there's things happening again. Like the, the galaxy is full of life that we can... I mean, because at the end of the day, the Necrontier, tragic, but also also an empire that wants to have hegemonic control over the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And they they very much believe that it's their right to do it now. Like they're in Probably in sort of a way of we've suffered enough. <laughs> you know, Maybe it's our time for a change. So, it all started by them asking the old ones for a sandwich. Yeah. And the old ones were like, no. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> in the 41st millennium and the 42nd millennium, um, the Necrons have started to wake up. Uh, in bits and pieces, um, usually because of stuff going on on the surface of their tomb worlds, sometimes because their leader of a certain dynasty has woken up themselves and starts powering everything back up again. But also, and this is something new-ish, uh, is that Sarek is back. The Silent King is he's back. Where did he go? Exactly. Well, he went for his own little nap, and now he's, he's come back. He takes his <laughs> shades off, and it's like this shit just got real. Um, because uh, a huge... Uh, galaxy-ending threat is approaching the Tyranids. A whole episode on that coming up. Essentially, very hungry, giant insect hive aliens. Yeah, whose whole purpose is to strip galaxies bare of biomass and sort of subsume it and move on. Uh, Problem for the Necrons here, or the Necrons now as they are, you can't uh, reverse biotransference if there's no bio for you to transfer yourself back into. So Sarek is back and is waking up the Necrons to go, whoop, okay, we've got to stop, we've got to hold this stuff off. And, this, and then if you just happen to be in the way, if you're humans or you're Eldar or you're Orcs or you're uh, any other race and you just happen to be on the Tomb World, then that adds your own problem. Um, it's a very, uh, get off my land! Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, the Necrons themselves actually, they don't. it's not like they wake up and immediately start you know, um, exterminating everything they find. In a lot of cases, Necron uh, dynasts will wake up, find 
humans or whatever else on their planet and send them pretty thinly veiled threats, but basically get off my get off my planet or I'm going to wipe you out, basically. And then the humans or whoever else, usually through hubris, is like, what? Or probably like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Excuse <laughs> me, do you have a flag? Yeah, do you have a flag? <laughs> also, what are you? You you know, and then uh, they get uh, stripped down molecularly until there's nothing left of them. So, <laughs> so a lot of the Necrons, they... The dynasts are either doing things like resource gathering at the moment, uh, or they're trying to learn about the galaxy they're waking up in, or they're performing small military raids to gauge the power of the factions around them. Uh, in fact, in the law, a very interesting raid actually happened where the uh, Necrons uh, found out that one of the Catan that they failed to kill was somewhere in the galaxy, and they went to go and try and find it. Interesting enough, that Catan currently sleeping under the surface of Mars right next to Terra, the heart of the Imperium. And uh, so one of the Imperium's first encounters with Necrons was when the Necrons basically appeared in in Mars and were just like, what the fuck are you doing? We've got to kill this thing. So how how did the Necrons travel? How did they get there without, like, this massive space navy noticing that they were there? Well, that's the thing. They the Necrons technology is so like ancient and advanced. They don't they don't even use the warp for travel. They basically just, I guess. Problem is, I I watched that bloody um, Hogwarts Legacy video game trailer the other day, so I can only think of the word apparate. But like, they basically, <laughs> they 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 use advanced teleportation, like like matter deconstruction and reconstruction. So here's a little science lesson on how me reading from a phone uh, of how the Necrons actually move around. They move around using something called the inertialess drive. Um, which apparently was quite contentious among game designers when they came up with it. But this is, uh, and I quote from the wiki here, uh, a non-Newtonian reactionless form of voidcraft propulsion uh, allows a vessel equipped with it to move through space without any form of inertia. This allows the voidcraft to actually travel faster than the speed of light in a vacuum in real space without resorting to travel through an extra-dimensional medium like the immaterium slash warp. I know that that does... That series of words in that order <laughs> does mean that it does imply that the Necrons would be able to travel very fast without being noticed, without using the warp, all that. But they haven't really answered the question. <laughs> it's a it's a lot of hand waving. Yeah, and also the next paragraph is it's like saying, "Oh yeah, MacGuffin." Yeah, and the because and again, as we mentioned, we already mentioned plenty of times in this podcast, all this stuff is through the Imperial. Imperium view. So the next paragraph is literally how this is accomplished without violating the known laws of physics is a complete mystery to Imperial tech. Hey! Um, yes, but they also use uh, uh, te- uh, teleportation to uh, to do interstellar travel, which I think is the is the teleportation or phasing, as it's called. Apparently, is their main method of transportation, which also doesn't use the warp. And they also use things called the Dolmen Gates, which were created during the War in Heaven to access the webway. So Necrons can also access the webway um, to move between places. Oh, okay, so they got you know tube, bus, DLR, overground, tram, everything. exactly. Uh, and I bet they actually fund theirs too. <laughs> so we like about the Necrons, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> oh god, yeah. They make they make the inertialist drives run on time. <laughs> Yeah, so they, they bypass pretty much all of uh, the ruling uh, faction in the galaxy, the most powerful faction in the galaxy, and slip directly into its home system because they're worried about one of the Catan that is currently sleeping under Mars. And interestingly enough, that Catan, known as the Void Dragon, 
Um, I love how all of these uh, all these Catans have such ominous metal names. Yeah, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, no, let's make a deal with them." It, it the sounds Deceiver, like a biker game. The Void Dragon. Yeah. yeah uh, so the Void Dragon is, is very, a great name. Is a, is a very cool name. Very beneath Mars, and also this is one of the cool lore conspiracy theories that the the Adeptus Mechanicus, the uh, basically the technology wing of the Imperium of Man, obsessed with technology, obsessed with the Omniscia, the Omnissia, again. There's a worry that the the god they worship isn't the same as the god Emperor, but is in fact the Void Dragon, who is asleep in the centre of Mars. And also that perhaps the Emperor knows he's there, and has spoken to him, and took some of his power. So it's, uh, yeah. Man, the Emperor, like, making making maybe deals with the Chaos Gods, making maybe deals with the Void Dragon. Yeah, he's, you know, maybe he's not a good guy. <laughs> also, maybe he's not that powerful. Yeah. Maybe he's just siphoning power from yeah. much more powerful beings. So this is something I actually found when I was doing research for this about, this is why it's a little aside in this episode, is because the Void Dragon, I thought the Void Dragon was, like, kind of wounded, but it's actually just asleep and mad. Because the Necrons, uh, when they were destroying the Catan, they threw, uh, apparently according to the law, they threw dozens of these Blackstone fortresses and all their weapons at the Void Dragon to try and kill it, um, failed, pissed it off, and then the Void Dragon just sort of went, I guess I'll wait until you guys are gone. And so went mad and fell asleep in Mars. And so that's why when the Necrons wake, wake up, they're like, where's the Void Dragon? <laughs> Where is it? We've got to go kill it, like, right now. But they, the Necron incursion into Mars is fought off by the Admech, and then that's when they're like, who, who are these guys who just turned up with technology we, we do not comprehend? Yeah, especially being the kind of um, technology monks living on a you know forge planet of Mars, and then a bunch of robots, well, not robots, but metal people with highly advanced technology turn up, and you're like, that, that's, that's really gonna, it's really showing you up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this tech is, I, I, and I think this sort of ties into sort of the wider sort of lore discussion about the Necrons and how they're, they're very cool because they are so, like, no one knows how their technology works. Like, it falls apart if someone tries to use it, a bit like orc technology. Um, and it's their weapons, their, uh, any of their offensive stuff, essentially when you're hit by it, it strips away, it strips away you on a molecular level. In fact, Sarek, uh, while trying to learn about the galaxy, one of his um, uh, pieces of equipment basically turns uh, an enemy into a pile of goo, of biological goo, which he then consumes to learn what that person, like, consumes everything that person knows. That's amazing. That's cool. Um, So, yeah, I think the Necrons are, um, and something we haven't really touched on is also sort of the Egyptian side of it. Yeah, I was was thinking about that when you were talking about, because when you're talking about the kind of, like, ancient and unknowable yeah, and mysterious yeah, yeah. and other um you know that those are all those are all tropes that are that are really heavily applied to kind of ancient egypt yeah so i think i think that's partly because we, we we couldn't read hieroglyphics until relatively recently until the rosetta stone was discovered mm. yeah and i i think that's because that you know this is what we do on this podcast we look at stuff like this and there's sort of a uh, because the the necrons of where well, they borrow from egyptian ancient egyptian culture but also like most factions in 40k they have their parallels in warhammer fantasy the tomb kings tomb kings maybe yeah, yeah who have quite a lot of similar parallels really if you if you look at things like uh nagash the supreme necromancer who tricked the tomb kings into like becoming lifeless husks themselves and yeah and now they sleep under the desert in their tombs yeah yeah and yeah and with um 
you know, supported by uh, kind of arcane constructs, you know, the Ushabti, the, the kind of statue monsters. Yeah. Whereas, I, th- I, I mean, I think also they have the same goals, don't they? I think the Tomb Kings, the Tomb Kings yeah. want to return to flesh. Return to flesh, return to empire. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, the heavy theme across both. But there's also with the Necrons, I think, and I, I, I probably reveal my ignorance when it comes to Tomb Kings, because I don't know how well this transfers across either. But there's a lot of sort of Lovecraftian, otherworldly kind of body horror stuff in there as well. When it comes, I to think there's less so comes. less so with the Tomb Kings because the Tomb Kings are generally much more of a straightforward, dry and dusty bones and mummies. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, with the Necrons, you have a lot more of that kind of almost Geiger esque um, kind of bio organic metallic technological with a with a kind of ancient twist yeah and that yeah that kind of mixture of ancient and magic and goth <laughs> is very lovecraftian yeah and i like i think that the one thing and that... also a little bit a little bit racially problematic also very lovecraftian yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> extremely lovecraftian because there's there are some things and we've spoken about it before on the podcast where 40k as a setting goes too deep into the oh grim 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 uh, let's make everything bad. Um, but I think there are some bits in the Necron Law that are just proper nightmare fuel stuff that I think, like, I think is put, I think it's so, I think it's just like, that's great. Like, that's fantastic. There's also some, some real, there's a real tragic element to it as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Like, out of all the, um, you know, out, out, out of all the, the races that we've talked about so far, I, this is the one, the, the Necrons are the ones that kind of peak that, that, yeah, that melancholy. Mm. You know, that they they had the misfortune to, you know, to initially live on really shitty planets that were horrible to live on, and then when they tried to go out into the world, they met these super powerful space frogs who refused to help them, and then they were deceived by these other space gods that promised them power, and now they can't even be pissed off about it because they've lost their emotions. Exactly. And like every Necron, even the, uh, even the more powerful ones, they're trapped that they're, yeah, they're trapped in the form they were when they were changed. So you, you don't age. Um, you, you are still of the same mind and soul you were when you were transferred. Um, and the engrams, uh, of their original personality inside them are themselves decaying and imperfect, which so, it's believed that the the soul, soul in air quotes, or the, the Necron tier as they were, sort of lives in a, a dreaming state, sort of like sleep paralysis, essentially, where you can barely recall who you are, your previous life, what you're doing, or perceive, you know, you know what's going on around you, and perhaps the, uh, you know, and, and also there's that there's that that trauma of being uh, being sort of semi-conscious, trying to breathe when you don't have lungs trying to see with eyes that aren't there. Yeah, like, like having memories of what it's like to experience a body yeah. and not having a body yeah, rather than just not having a body. Yeah, and I think what I think the, the real um, trigger warning, child abuse, um, the real heavy stuff with Necron is when, like, because your soul is trapped at the moment you change, there are, like, reports in... There are things in the law of, like, Imperial forces reporting that when they kill Necron warriors, they hear the sound of screaming children and things like wow. that. Which is, like really fucking 
that's like the, that of one of the few things in 40k that's like really fucking that's is. a lot yeah because especially because like you know with coming from imperial reports like in the imperial army especially the you know the, the imperial army rather than the space marines like you know obviously the space marines are conditioned to be these kind of uncaring fascist kind of super soldiers yeah but like the imperial army they're just they're frontline conscripts and they see a lot of horrible awful shit but killing a killing a skeleton robot that has just vaporized your friend and then hearing it go yeah that's 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 a lot i think like like it was one i wanted to bring it up because i think it's probably the most like the darkest thing I've ever read. I, think, <laughs> I mean, and they try hard and a lot of time they miss and they sort of go towards like, just sort of and it becomes a bit cartoon. Yeah. Cartoony dark, even when they're trying to be edgy, but yeah. like, that is like, that's not, that's not, you're not playing that to be edgy. That's just like pure. I know what nightmare. I'm having nightmares about yeah, tonight. Exactly. That's pure. Just like that. And that's, that's what, and I think also the Necrons, uh, from, from a tabletop perspective. And also I remember when they first came out, a lot of people were sort of like, um, if you look at like their technology and everything, it was like, oh, these these guys are so like mad and overpowered and horrible, and they're the end of everything. Like they're going to ruin the the game. Um, and there was a lot of pushback against the Necrons. I think one of the things that people didn't like about them, and this is something I absolutely loved about them, is that they can put themselves back together. Yes, in a very much that kind of like uh, xylophone cartoon skeleton style. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. When when you when they get killed, uh, the turn afterwards if you roll a, above a certain number on a dice, then uh, some of them will kind of reanimate and put themselves back together. And um, yeah, I, I love a self-repairing robot. It's metal as fuck. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think as well in the lore, it's like this idea that they're not like... You still can't die! Yeah. <laughs> and, and like the... And all the Necrons that the... the Because it's always... And it's something we, we touch on in episode one, but it's something you should always think about when you, when you read... Uh, sources and lore and books. It's all written from the Imperium's perspective. Mm-hmm. So from the Imperium's perspective, it's encountering these nigh unkillable robotic killing machines that get back up when you potentially kill them. But this is just the these are just the people who woke up early. Like these are just like the guys who just ha- you activated by mistake. And there's thousands of these worlds covering the galaxy where the Necrons are asleep. Um, and also these are. You know the least sentient ones of the of the of the Necrons. So you know most most of the Necrons that that the Imperium is going to come into contact with are going to be very dehumanized or de-Necrontierized, dehumanoidized, yeah. um, and and kind of automata esque. Very few Imperial historians or soldiers or anyone is ever going to meet you know a. Uh, an overlord or a, or a pharaoh or, or whatever the, you know the ruling classes that still have more of their faculties and and you'd you'd be able to have a conversation with yeah yeah and there are some personalities in the necron law who are named when you say personalities in the necron law i'm just imagining like a necron <laughs> influencer <laughs> oh my god yeah there are some uh personalities uh, as weird as that sounds uh, among the necrons who actually sort of give you a glimpse into the idea of these things not just being a more interesting than just a, 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 a horde of robots that kill people. One of them is is, is Trazen the Infinite, who Great is name. yeah, ten out of ten name. He's a, a, a Necron overlord of the uh, of one of the dynasties, um, who is a keeper of history and a preserver of artifacts. 
Uh, and on his tomb world, he has one of these labyrinthine infinite corridor things where he basically, he made, his job uh, and other Necron overlords hate him for it. He doesn't really give a damn about the quest of the Necrons to go back to their human form. He just really fucking loves stuff. So he, he's a curator. Yeah. So he goes out <laughs> and he steals stuff from like from other portions of the galaxy and puts them in his in his little labyrinth and museum. So, so he's not he's not like um, he's not collecting old Necron technology. He's just accumulating all sorts of stuff he finds interesting. Yeah, and he's he plays a huge part in the at the end of the forty first millennium, um, where spoilers if you haven't read the stuff about Cadia. I mean, you probably should have if you <laughs> if you're interested in that kind of stuff then turn off now um but at the end of the 41st million when kadia is destroyed by the blackstone fortress um Trazen is one of the he's working with the uh the imperium to try and shut to close the eye um of terror uh, the eye of terror which connects the warp and real space um but what he does is he to help out the defenders of kadia he opens up his museum and he brings uh inquisitor grayfax who is an Inquisitor he trapped like 2,000, 3,000 years earlier. And so she bundles out with all of her bodyguard, and she's like, what the fuck is going on? And are they all strapped up with like mad yeah, ancient tech, ancient yeah, technology? Ancient, ancient imperial tech. And they're like, she's like, what the fuck? And then like, what's going Because <laughs> she existed, she existed like, or maybe she's even older. I think maybe she came from like just after the Horus Heresy. Oh, so, so she's 10,000 years old. Yeah, she's really old. And then it's like, she also comes from an Imperium where like, you don't have things like, uh, um, messianic figures who have wings and fly around and are saints. So the whole there's a whole thing about how she meets Saint Celestine, who has wings and is she's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> You're an alien aberration and a heretic. I'm gonna get. And then it's like, oh okay. So yeah, Trazen's really cool in that kind of way. And there's there's uh, he spoilers again. He nicks the the Cadian uh, general creed, Azarkity creed. Um, is believed dead, but he's actually been nicked and put in Trazen's uh, museum in a state of suspended animation. I really like this guy. As you know, as someone who works in a museum myself, <laughs> I I get on with Trazen. Yeah, and like you know, he takes him from a dying planet, and he so basically he's like you know, and there's there, there's I think there's a artwork, official artwork of Trazen walking through his his, um, his museum. He's got like Horus Horus Heresy era Space Marines. He's got like. <laughs> Still in their original packaging. Yeah, he's got, <laughs> in their old armor. He's got like it's very much like the, you know, there's um the collector from Marvel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he's got is some crazy stuff. He's got like uh he's got like spaceships because obviously these this like well yeah because if if if, he's, if his museum doesn't really exist in time and space as normal yeah then you can put whatever you want in there exactly. Although we've said the word he a lot. Do we, are there any notable female Necron tier or Necrons? Here we go. Are there female Necrons? Yes. And no. <laughs> um, of course, the 40k answer. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there are a few named uh, Necron um, characters. Uh, oh, God. There's pronunciation time. Uh, Zun Bakir, who is a Feyrak, which is like Feyron, but Feyrak means they're a woman. Um, a lady pharaoh. Another pharaoh appears in the Ghost Warrior series and the Rise of Nari books. Uh, again, this is me reading from from stuff on my phone, so I apologize. But uh, and also a female cryptech, and a cryptech is a Necron scientist, uh, appears in the Anrakir novel Devourer. So there's a okay. So we got just under a handful of female Necron characters. Yes, there's a uh, some a commenter here, and this is from the 40k lore Reddit. Um, 
who says that they had the chance to talk to Matt Ward, one of the game designers and novelists at uh, uh, Games Workshop. Uh, the answer about female Necrons was that they were removed from the original codex at the instruction of the then head of IP, Alan Merritt, uh, who also gave the instruction to remove the inertialist drive from the law because... Um, for reasons, apparently. Um, well, I, the one, the one, one of the potential explanations for the erasure of female Necrons, kind of from the rank and file, you know, the re, you know, there are, there are a couple of those high-ranking characters. You would probably expect more, but it's understandable in the in the lower ranks because you know those were the budget bodies. And so they probably just had one size fits all, you know, we'll get, you know, they put baby souls in there. They put adult souls in there. They put, you know, they'll just put anyone in this generic mm. robot body, which I guess could be an explanation for the lack of visible, uh, visibly female Necrons yeah. in the, in the kind of army kind of uh, the, the, the ranks. But, Three, <laughs> three high-ranking women in an in a galaxy-spanning civilization. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the that explanation is an is a hand-wavy one, and mm-hmm. I think I think you give. I, I, think, I was reaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I was know. very much. I think reaching. that's the one that gives Games Workshop a bit of leeway, where it's like, well, maybe they are all genderless, but why do we call them all he? Um, but yeah, another part of this thing was uh, apparently uh, Matt Ward suggested to this commentator. This is someone else's interpretation. This is by no means true. This is what something I'm reading from the internet but suggested, according to this person's memory, that removing female Necrons was done to stop the Necrons from being too empathetic as a faction. Now, that's a uh, loaded word. Yes. If you have women in a faction, it may, means they're more empathetic. Yes. It's harder to kill because it because it looks like a woman. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. This is something that we've talked about before with Games Workshop and we will talk about again with Games Workshop <laughs> and we will probably talk about with other sci-fi and fantasy settings because it's, you know, it's not an uncommon trope. No. Um, but the whole thing of, you know, everything being about every every relevant person in every faction is a combatant and the rule, there are exceptions to the rule, but the rule being that, you know, the combatants are generally portrayed as male um, is, you know, it's a lazy shorthand and it's, uh, I mean, you know, it's something that people are questioning more nowadays, but yeah, you know, when, for example, with the Imperium, it's, you know, all space Marines are men, but women can be sexy space nuns. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, that it's all very coded. Again, I, I want to, very much want to preface this as based on a single comment I've read on Reddit. So I don't want to at all say this is definitely what Mr. Ward said or anything like that. But on a wider perspective... Allegedly! (laughs) On a wider discussion point, you know, that is... It's in other media as well. But the idea that um, women are squishy and um, you should feel sorry for them and they can't be competent, they can't be strong, they can't do this, they can't do the other... Or also just that, like, you know, if you put women in a faction, it means that people will, like, think they're worse or weaker or, or, or deserve... Or, or maybe, or maybe what the... Another interpretation of that is that if you if you put, uh, if you put uh, female Necrons in, then they seem 
more like a civilization. They seem more like a group of people rather than an army of robot skeletons. Yeah. You know, so so it's more like you'd feel bad for killing them because they're people who happen to be in metal bodies rather than just this totally inhuman horde and tide of metal yeah i, I think that i think that's a I think that's an excellent point i mean it, it's it also it like ties in with you see it across like we said multiple media it's things like that age-old tip for oh if you're playing dungeons and dragons and you're a dm and you want your players to feel bad make the goblins have children mm-hmm. and they say like, oh now you humanize them because they've got children yeah you've now orphaned a whole load of goblin yeah. babies yeah. yeah you know if you had necron children or uh, child child soldier Necrons, which they do have, but just not explicitly. Mm-hmm. Then you know, and then it, uh, and that again and every, again and again with the imperial lens. But that's the point. These are bad guys. They're bad guys for the good guys in massive, massive air quotes. The imperial mm-hmm. to fight and deal with, and you can't have them be people. Know. Yeah, exactly. Which which you know, um, having an empire that is fighting another civilization but dehumanizes the imperium is going to dehumanize the necrons in universe but to have games workshop dehumanize the necrons out of universe for the purpose of making the game feel more like imperial propaganda or or feel more like the world that imperial propaganda portrays i'm not super comfortable with especially given the history of Real-world imperial powers dehumanizing other civilizations and making it okay to kill. Mm. And then also dehumanizing a a faction in your universe which is heavily based on ancient Egypt or mm-hmm. <laughs> Middle Eastern tropes, or Orientalism, mm-hmm. and then being like, ah, oh, these, these guys... Are, They're know. not real. They don't have women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, some... People might be listening to this and thinking, aren't you thinking a little bit too deeply about this? We did warn you right at the start. That's the point. It says it on the tin. So this is, and this the theme is the- of this episode, basically, is that both the Necrons and the Tau, uh, who we will talk about in a moment, uh, have a sort of a, whoops, did we make some good guys kind of aspect to them. And then, Recon, yeah. no, they're actually baddies. Yes, exactly. And... You know, this is the problem when you create a universe which is filtered through the lens of a human faction, and also when you want that human faction to be the heroic good guys, as discussed in episode one in detail, um, you can't allow alien species to be viewed as people better than better than your creation of humans, mm-hmm. or in fact, better than humans, or in fact, just on the same level as humans, mm-hmm. uh, which is no. Uh, which is no better exemplified than in the creation of the Tau, which we're going to talk about in part two. Uh, But now we're going to take a break and bye. (laughs) Hello. Welcome back from from an ad break that didn't exist. Uh, Vocal zone. (laughs) Um, I'm going to get that sponsorship. I hope hope so. I hope you do. Uh, we talked about the Necrons, um, a faction who, if you think a little too deeply about it, like Kinko and I always do, can be seen to be the good guys, to the Tau, a faction created by Games Workshop that was pretty much from the off, obviously the good guys, and so hard the good guys that they had to be... Un-good-guide. un uh, almost immediately. 
So because the Tau are an extremely, extremely young faction in the 41st millennium, there's not actually a lot of history to talk about. So we're going to start with what the Tau looked like. Because, you know, they were introduced, what, uh, 6th edition? They, they were introduced relatively late into the game. I, yeah. I was I was still playing 40k when the Tau were, in, were introduced. Yeah. Uh, and even in the lore, they're only 6,000 years old as like a species. So, uh, yeah, so we'll start with what they look like. So the Tau well, are... If you read the Bible, that's how old we are. <laughs> well, yeah, well, <laughs> some people listening to this going, hold on a second, that's normal. That's, that's the average, that's how I, yeah. Yeah, so the Tau are, they're, they're humanoid species. Uh, they stand upright on two legs. Um, they have grey-blue skin, uh, hoofed feet, although you don't really see that very often. Uh, on the models, that is, and they have four-digit hands. Um, they're Simpsons. Yeah, their 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 faces are described, and this is a quote, uh, as flat, wide around the eyes, with a slit for a nose. Although they're, as in for where the nose would be, their actual olfactory sensors are inside their mouths. Um, sure. Uh, so the slit is for something else. Yeah. <laughs> hey, get your mind out the gutter. <laughs> I wasn't even going there. <laughs> um, female towel. Uh, and this is yeah, this is totally not creepy. Female Tau are again quotes smoother and sleeker, with larger eyes, and have a Y-shaped slit, which obviously looks a little bit more like a human nose. Um, and yeah, so they they're more human featured. So wait, so they 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 were like, okay, there are female Tau, but they're, they're hotter. They're hotter. <laughs> I, why it it didn't have to be baked in from the beginning like that. Sorry, I know we normally spend like the first couple of minutes just kind of giving a rundown, but I had I've got to jump in. Oh, come on! <laughs> yeah, we haven't even you know you've baked like we're two sentences in, and they're already we're already doing the kind of you know female aliens are just uh, oh. you know weird coloured uh, you know hot female humans. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. I mean, don't. <clears throat> there's a lot of fan art, and I wouldn't recommend looking at it. Don't Google it, as we said. <laughs> That's going to be our first piece of merch. Don't <laughs> Google, Google it. it. Don't Google it. Don't at me. Um, yes. So this will also factor into uh, something we'll talk about a lot later about the Tau and how they're extremely coded to... You'll probably pick it up as we talk about it, how where they're coded to. So the Tau. Uh, in the 41st slash 42nd millennium, they actually possess some of the most advanced technology and weapons in the entire galaxy. Which is a phrase that you hear a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's ancient and advanced. Sometimes it's new, new and advanced. advanced. Yeah. But it, in this case, it's when the Codex first came out, and now actually with new changes to the latest Codex, the Tau are, uh, have always kind of been considered overpowered as a tabletop faction and also as a... Uh, well, they were when they first came out, and then they got, uh, in you know gaming parts, they got nerfed hard to the point where they were not, not very good at ranged anymore anyway. But before, they would wipe pe- the floor with people... And in the law, it's still sort of a a thing that the standard infantry weapon of the Tau, pulse rifle, which fires uh, sort of a mixture between a laser beam and plasma, um, can punch through most armor, including the armor of space marines. So the, the hardest armor that the Imperium can create, ceramite, uh, with ease. And I think the first law had like standard Tau basically fucking murdering space marines. And everyone was like, no, you can't do that. Our, our precious space messiah boys. Yeah, exactly. Uh but not only do the Tau make use of, uh, you know, infantry, they have the, the the largest part of their armies are battle suits, or essentially mecha, piloted mecha, um, 
which have huge uh, huge guns mounted on the shoulders, their arms, uh, and they have bulky, uh, cool-looking 80s-style Voltron slash Power Rangers. Yeah, very, very Gundam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Emphasis on the gun. Yeah, not, not so, yeah <laughs> lots of gun, not so much Evangelion. More gun, less philosophy. So yeah, the Tau united as a species uh, only, in, uh, in air quotes again, 6,000 years before the 41st millennium. Um, so the 35th millennium. Yes. Uh, and in, in around the 35th millennium uh, was when they were first discovered by, again, imperial explorers. So imperial perspective. On this. Okay, okay, okay. So they were discovered yes. around 6,000 years before the th- 41st millennium. Yeah. And they united around that same time? Or yeah. it's presumed that they united because that's around the time they were discovered? Yeah, I think... Because this is all very Colombian. Yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah, and when they were first... Um... Not not as in, you know, the country. Yeah. <laughs> Christopher. The, the genocidist. Yes, Chris- yeah. Christopher, Christopher Syphilis. Um... <laughs> Chrysophilus. Chrysophilus. Um, yes, so when they were first discovered, the Tau were uh, at a Stone Age level when they were when they were first observed by Imperial ex- explorers, and obviously designated for their what their world was quite nice, so designated for removal. We'll, we'll have that. We'll get rid of them yeah. soon. But when the explorers left the system, it was engulfed with warp storms. What a what a coincidence! Um, which blocked it off from usual travel for for a few thousand years. Um, and when the uh, Imperials meet them again, well, who boy, these fellas have come on a long way since then. No more sticks and stones. Exactly. So, essentially, uh, during the Tau, when they were cut off during these warp storms, during the Tau's equivalent of the medieval slash renaissance period, their home planet, also called Tau, how handy, was sort of made up of factions split between very Avatar-style systems of elements, and uh, your culture was tied to that element. What's the word that they use? Oh yes, well, caste system. <laughs> uh, it's, but it's te- I think it, it evolves into a caste system okay. when they unite. But originally, it's about where you're from on the planet. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And so it's the good avatar, not the yes. not the giant Smurfs avatar. Not giant Smurfs avatar. No. Cool. So, despite them being blue. Yes, despite them very being confusing. Blue gray. Um, <laughs> and smooth. Yes. <laughs> so it's split into into the into four elements. We'll you can use the town names later on, but for simplicity, uh, water, uh, the water tribe about diplomacy, guile, subterfuge, the fire tribe, about warfare, uh, traditional militarism, earth tribe, about cities, fortifications, sieges, that kind of stuff, and the air tribe, about um, navy, weirdly, and air force. Kind and of mobility. Of mobility, yeah. Um, so during uh, a big siege of an earth tribe city, um, two strange enigmatic individuals appear between the, the, the lines, uh, creatures that will become known as ethereals. Uh, these... They look like Tau, but they're taller, slender. Um, they sort of pre- have that sort of upright uh, appearance of. I really don't like the prevalence of like the kind of uber person. Yes, ubermensch style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seems to crop up in most forty k civilizations. Yeah. So the, these people appear and they broker a peace between the um, the the besieged and the besiegers, preaching sort of a peace and understanding between all Tau how they should come together. For the greater good, and more on the greater good in a second. So. And the, the greater and good are both capitalized, capitalized as fuck. The GG. Um, so these ethereals, they appear all over Tau, the planet, and help bring together the Tau society together uh, to rapidly expand the Tau society, <laughs> te- technology, <laughs> e- economy, and things like that. And it's, it is extremely rapid. Um, the Tau um, have something of a you know a huge boost 
in their production and their capabilities. They they strike out into space very very quickly in a series of uh, sphere expansions. More on that later, um, where worlds around them are colonized, conquered, or peacefully annexed into the Tau Empire. Now, there's two things there. We'll t- we're going to go into a little bit of uh, detail a little bit later as well. But these include alien species in air quotes, um, the Crute, uh, probably most associated with the Tau, who are another air quote word, savage, um, carnivorous and cannibalistic humanoids who evolve from like birds. They look very similar to uh, the Turians from Mass Effect, if you've played Mass Effect, but if they had uh, jaws, basically. Yeah, they've kind of got <clears throat> jawy beaks and uh, kind of... In, it's kind of uh, manes of kind of quill-like, feather-like um, kind of protrusions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from a game sense, they were introduced because the Tau needed some people to do close combat fighting. Yeah. Um, because the Tau are very good at shooting things to pieces from a long distance with their big hovering tanks and mm-hmm. Gundam suits and pulse rifles. Um, but the crew are a lot of the frontline fighters... Um, they've got like knives on their guns, um, not just bayonets, but like knives all over their guns. And they've got big, sharp jaws, and they've got like creatures like crute hounds and crutox, which are kind of even bitier. Yeah, uh, the crute are, are really interesting um, and probably deserve a lot more time than we're going to give them because they're. I think in in a sort of a Games Workshop could have created this this um, this subsidiary race and sort of left it there. But the crew are interesting. They're extreme. They're almost like orcs in see episode two in their adaptability. Um, their entire planet is evolved from the same sort of species. So they all look this, like they have very like their crew hounds have the same face and structure. Crew themselves are um, quite laconic in the way they speak. They're uh, and there's probably an exploration there into the idea of the noble savage kind of thing going. on. Yeah, there is there is definitely a noble savage vibe in their portrayal. Like. You know, they're, they're also portrayed as somewhat mystical. Like, you mm. know, their leaders are called shapers, mm. um, kind of shamanic in vibe. Yeah. Um, so more on the crew's relationship with the Tau later as well. But then the other species involved are the, the Vespid, who are uh, an insectoid flying race who rely on crystal technology, um, who actually the Tau had trouble talking to at first until they created uh, a, seri- a, a sort of a special helmet um is that not it's not the actual name <laughs> the special helmet i think it although i think it does have a name very similar to just communications helm or something like that um which enables the town to talk to the vespid who have sort of a more of a consciousness way of speaking to each other and i believe that the vespid um during the great crusade um the space marines had a couple of fights against the vespids yeah they're in a couple of the horus heresy books yeah uh, and the Vespid um, were first depicted when the Vespid are first described in the Tau Codex. They are described as being, uh, once the Tau could speak to them, extremely willing and extremely enthusiastic about joining the Tau uh, faction and, uh, and took on the greater good as a philosophy very, very readily, um, which was slightly changed. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, then they also have the Nikasar or Nikasar, um, who are. Very rare, actually, very little art depicts of them, but they're basically floating space polar bears with multiple limbs. What? How have I not heard of these <laughs> floating, multi-limbed space bears? Powerful psychic space bears. On a live on air, because Kinko is in loves things like this. We're gonna live uh, type this into a to a Google image search because I think that you to ca- capture your uh, 
reaction to these would be worthy of recording. Here we go. Okay, Nick, so, uh <laughs> He's leaning forward. There you oh go. my god, that's so cool! So in, one, in one aspect, they're like floating space bears. In another, they're sort of like floating tentacle monsters. But floating tentacly multi-limbed space bears. Yeah. What? Why are they not a? Why would you invent something like that and not make it the like the centerpiece of the entire game? <laughs> How you can't just mention that in some like law in passing and then not? They don't even haven't even made a mini of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a crime. Yeah, so the Nikasar basically are um psychic creatures, the only psychically um able creatures in the Tau Empire, and that so as as um as a result they tend to pilot a lot of the Tau starships. They're uh, good at pilot they they also have like a uh they're a race which loves exploration and has a wanderlust, so the Tau utilize that by letting them pilot ships or or you know um em- employing them as ships pilots. Imagine like you're on a towel ship. <laughs> yeah, you're. Yeah, it's your first day. You're, you're, you're the intern. You're bringing the coffee. Yeah. And someone's like, "Oh, can you take this up to the pilot?" <laughs> you're like, "Yeah, sure, yeah." And so you know, you get in the get in the lift, go up to the right floor, go along the corridor. You type in the code. Door opens to the cockpit, and you go in. You know, looking looking for a a smooth grey blue yeah. person. And there's a there's a giant multi limbed tentacled space bear <laughs> wearing a helmet <laughs> with a visor over it. Amazing, <laughs> floating in midair. So good. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but they're not the only alien creatures the uh, the Tau have subsumed into their empire because some of them are humans, uh, known by known to the Tau as the Gueveza or Gueveza pronunciation again this this episode um because tower space is actually extremely close and if you ask imperials i'll probably say inside um the ultima segmentum of imperial space uh, basically so, next door to the ultramarines space marines faction <laughs> sorry i will i will never have anything more than for the ultramarines the most boring space marine faction then like if you're gonna be superhuman space fascists at least be interesting about it <laughs> yeah come at me i don't give a shit this time at him completely ultramarine fans get off the show <laughs> God, i'm not sure we're big enough to be telling people to get off the show already but so you can be good cop yeah uh, i'll be um... honest cop <laughs> so th- this um close proximity means that during their expansions as the tau called them when they when they at regular intervals expand outwards they uh subsume some human uh, planets um and also results in the damocles gulf crusade or the damocles gulf crusade depending on how you want to pronounce it if you want to emphasize gulf or you want to emphasize yeah i i i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna interject again <laughs> i i don't know whether this is me being uh a sensitive arab but i don't think they needed to put the word gulf in there <laughs> I I'm I'm not sure we needed a Gulf Crusade. <laughs> We've had two. <laughs> yeah, the words Gulf and Crusade next to each other. Yeah, also Damocles, which in itself is quite biblical. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, there you go. Hopefully, uh, complete coincidence. <laughs> uh, yes. Hopefully, just careless. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the Imperium and the Tower have a bit of a, a bit of a fight with each other. Um, 
uh, and end up waking up some Necrons as well at the same time. Form an uneasy alliance, as is the usual case in Warhammer uh, media, where you have two factions fighting. Oh, we have a common enemy. Yeah, and the third one turns up, and they, you know. Um, but when the when the uh, when the Damocles um, kerfuffle kerfuffle um, it, uh, finishes, it's sort of a, a, a tie because anything else would be interesting. Um, where the Imperium gets a bloody nose and the Tau sort of go, oh, these guys are everywhere. And so now, you know, these two military empires grow to have a kind of wary kind of respect for each other's power. Yeah, yeah. And then also the Tau sort of have an issue because, um, we've already mentioned them, a splinter fleet of the Tyranids turns up in Tau space. Um, The Tau fight them off, um, but as a result, uh, because of the ability of the Tyranids to adapt to, to whoever they're fighting. And also because the Tau themselves are a very adaptable race, it creates a uh, it creates a splinter fleet that is uh, decidedly more dangerous than other aspects of it. It's extremely uh, hardy against like pulse weapons and long-range firepower and things like that. I've always loved the Tyranids. I can't wait for us to do an episode about them. <laughs> uh, my, my, my biologist side is going to come out hard. And that's the... Uh, that that's it really for Tau history. That's and I, I know you, you're sort of looking at your watch and thinking, don't you guys usually spend like half an hour on this? And it's like, yeah, usually we do because there is. But that that's it for the Tau. And in, in fact, really, Tau history is not the most interesting part of the Tau. There isn't much Tau history in the lore because, as we've said before, all history is told from the imperial perspective, yes. pretty much. And so, just like you know. Uh, the history that is broadly known in our world of the Americas, there's a massive emphasis on the post-colonization or the post, uh, you know, after Europeans met the people already living there. Yeah. So, you know, the, the lore is very light on Tao history until these Imperial explorers arrive. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point actually. Yeah. Um, and, and one thing we actually, should mention is that uh, there is also a sort of a uh, a re- rebellious, semi-rebellious uh, side, a uh, part of the Tau Empire called the Farsight Enclaves, which are run by a Tau commander called uh, Commander Shadow Sun, who is a woman. Hey, hey. Um, <laughs> one of the I think what also let's not get too excited. One of the like the two or three named female Tau. That's what you got to do. you got to have a couple of named, very powerful, very cool women. And then that means that you don't have to have any women ever anywhere else. And <laughs> that's totally fine. So, <laughs> yeah. So the thing with Shadow Sun and the Farsight Enclaves is that... Again, all... another dope name. Yeah, Shadow Sun's great. Commander Shadow Sun. Yeah. Um, of the Farsight. Farsight. Okay, no. So I was thinking it was like Q-tips... Uh, not Kita, sorry, a Fat Lips uh, hip hop group. Um, <laughs> incredible album. Uh, sorry, we'll cut that part out. <laughs> or will we? Um, <laughs> the thing with Shadow Sun is that she has some beef with the Ethereals. Um, it's not quite explained, but the, essentially the Farsight Enclaves are live separate from Ethereals in Tower Space, and usually they don't. They don't. They're not really. They're sort of in a cold war with each other. They don't fight each other, but they equally don't really have great relations because. Mm-hmm understandably when we talk more about ethereals they don't want to be having someone who has broken free of their control we'll talk about control in a moment um messing things up so that's the only other aspect really of tile history from the imperial side that is probably worth uh we, we mentioning before we move on to the greater good um 
and I'm, I'm it's absolutely fine by the way if like 75 percent of you listening say the greater good immediately afterwards because of hot fuzz because i do in my head every single time <laughs> uh but this predated that film so uh the tower cast just cast very loaded word however set within the greater good the whole idea of it is that uh the good of the many is uh more worthy than the good of the individual each person in the tower empire is viewed when it comes to their usefulness to the wider state and your social standing is judged on your place in the various cast. Um, and I think it's also worth mentioning because as you said, cast is a loaded word that cast, no cast is better than another cast apart from the ethereals. So fire, water, air, earth, they're all level in terms of, you can't say, Oh, I'm because I'm a earth cast. I'm better than a fire cast. It's separate, but equal. Yeah. <laughs> but then it's also where you are in that determines your social standing. So, Okay, so it's like a there's there's kind of two axes. Yeah, you've got your 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 cast, which is your kind of vibe, and then you've got your status within that cast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, so it's slightly different from how the, the the words cast system are used in a lot of kind of real world human yeah. uh, contexts. And to my knowledge, and again, this is to my knowledge off the top of my head, there's no like underclass, as in there's no like. I also don't think the towel have a have a. As in, like, I don't think they designed the designers or the Tao law has a thing of like a castless, which is obviously a thing that happens in real oh, world yeah, cast yeah, societies. Yeah. So I don't, yeah, yeah, so I don't think they have a castless. Um, so yeah, so the casts are because um, the Tao have their own language, which is bare bones, but quite still quite cool. Uh, so there's Shas, which is fire, Theo, which is earth, Paw, which is water, and Core, which is air, and there's Aun, which is the ethereals. Um, and then <laughs> as we, we, this is a roller coaster because as we ride, ride bits, we're like, oh, it's not as bad as real word. Uh, uh, each cast looks slightly different based on their roles. Of course. Um, so fire cast tower stronger, uh, have better, uh, air cast, um, have better eyesight because they're pilots. Uh, earth cast are tougher and more durable because they have to move heavy. <laughs> Water cast. And they, are... <laughs> they don't feel pain during childbirth. No. <laughs> Water cast are, um, I, I mean, the only thing is that they're, they're hotter. <laughs> like they like because they're the diplomats. They're like they're kind of like better. They're more amenable to other species. Okay. But um, wait, so but how do you? And I, I know I might be, go, I might be asking questions that <laughs> might not need answering. But how do you create? How do you breed a a section of your society that is meant to be diplomats and stuff? Um, and if you're going to be kind of interacting with all sorts of different, yeah. uh, you know, alien races, how do you make one type of person that's hotter to all aliens? <laughs> Is it William Shatner? <laughs> Is it just Tao William Shatner that they yeah. created? I mean, also, I'm looking at it now, it's like, and again, this also ties into when we get to the how are they problematic bit of it, but having your uh, your diplomats be like, Hotter, you're intelligent. You're intelligent in air quotes, erudite air quotes. Yeah, it's speed. very much the halo effect. Yeah, and I don't mean Master Chief. I mean, <laughs> uh, so for, for any of you that might not be familiar with it, the halo effect is a psychological um, effect that people who are deemed physically attractive are often ascribed, whether rightly or not, other positive attributes. Um, so they're thought to be more intelligent. They're thought to be more trustworthy, stuff like that. Um, obviously, 
both of your hosts on this show are devastatingly handsome, incredibly intelligent, and as trustworthy as they come. But that doesn't always, uh, that's not always the case. Yeah. Feel free to quote that in your review of the podcast as well. <laughs> yeah. So all of those casts uh, adhere to the greater good, which in Tao is called uh, Tao, 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 Tao. I mean, <laughs> I've got a little tangent, but how lazy can you get when you're creating a, a, a society that all their adjectives, adverbs, and descriptors have to be just Tao? Smurf. <laughs> they're blue, and every word is themselves. <laughs> oh my god, they're space Smurfs. They're Gundam, Gundam's, Gundam, Gundam Avatar Smurfs. Gundam Avatar Smurfs. So they adhere to the greatest good in Tao is called the Tao-Va. So, which, which in my... <laughs> again, it's like, so your planet's called Tao. You are the Tao. Your word for either greater or good is Tao. So like either Va is like greater or it's or it's good. Maybe 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 the you know greater good is a rough translation. Maybe. And maybe it's like Tao is the collective. Oh maybe and you're right. Va is good. Fair, so like uh, yeah, fair, actually. You know, or, or like the or like Tao Va is like Tauness. You know, it's the it's the oneness, it's the the community super organism almost all right you've charmed me i think that that's, that's <laughs> well it's because uh, i'm watercast <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um that can go so hot um <laughs> so yeah it's it's unknown how the ethereals actually control in air quotes the towel because this is something that was added a little bit later on um there are it's it varies across media so some of the theories this is theories in game and theories outside of outside of law kind of thing so is psychic control and in the 40k game fire warrior it's implied that ethereals use psychic control of the tower to do so uh others think it might be biological uh ethereals have oh and that's the point ethereals have a diamond shaped th- stud in the center of their foreheads um with... <laughs> it's, it's all it's a mixed so it's a real mixed bag of <laughs> of like oh yeah uh east yeah but further further yeah yeah so uh it's thought that perhaps that those um that physical uh aspect of the ethereals emits pheromones which like enrapture nearby tau um and make them more amenable so why does it have to be psychic control or pheromone yeah. control yeah like why can't they just cooperate for the greater good. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing as well. Like The ethereal control aspect was brought in a little bit later because initial feedback from the Tao as a faction was that people were like, they're too nice or they're too good. Or like they, they're oh, too Oh, I feel good. bad killing them. Well, yeah, maybe that. But that was... <laughs> it makes me realise that my faction is actually the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. And like, uh, the yeah, the first feedback to the Tao was that they're too good for the Warhammer 40k universe. They're not grim enough. Um, so that's also where the Vespid control helms thing comes from because I thought they were communication helms initially, but now it's sort of like, Oh, maybe they're domination helms that they're using to mind control the Vespid. Wait, wait, so, so they, they, they they turn up to the Vespid and they're like, Hey guys, I made you this really cool hat. Why don't you put it on? Yeah. And then the the Vespid are like, I'm not sure it's my style. And they're like, come on, just try it on just this once. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that yeah, and also, and that's because earlier when I mentioned that the Vespid were initially described in the law as being very enthusiastic adopters of the greater good, that's then twisted to be like they were very enthusiastic once they put they on were the mind control yeah, by yeah. the hats. They, they, they were they were fifty fifty on the hats, but then as soon as they got the hat on, they were totally sold on the greater good. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, to be fair, I you know I I can be persuaded with a good hat. <laughs> yeah. So there's like the greater good uh, in the law is initially portrayed as something very appealing to multiple different factions and peoples, um, especially to humans as well. Humans, surprisingly, are quite happy about living in a society in which you're cared for by the state. Where and... you're not just a disposable asset of a uh, of a kind of religious ethno-state war machine. Exactly. And even in in, in the media, there's like, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, there's a campaign in the law called the Taros Campaign, where it's part of one of the expansions where the population of Taros, who had all, all, all what, one of the me. one of the Tau expansions. Yes, yes. So Taros was an imperial world that had been trading with the Tau uh, on minor aspects, sort of talking with their diplomats and stuff. Then the Tau was sort of like glomped them in terms of expansion. Um, not only wholesale went over to the Tau and embraced the greater good, but when the Imperials arrived to retake the planet, fought side by side with the Tau against the Imperials. As like you guys are like now you're coming here and come, we want to stay with these guys. These guys are much cooler, basically. Which which I think really serves to highlight, you know, the the stark differences between you know because you know like we said during the Necron part of this episode that you know these are still empires. Yeah, you know, empires yeah. in general are not without their you know <laughs> empires in general as a rule aren't great, but. Um, I think the the contra the contrast between the Tau Empire and the Human Imperium couldn't be stronger. Like, and it's po- it's totally exemplified in that that Taros planet. Yeah. When you know this is a this is a planet of humans who had seen what it's like to live under both empires and said, "Nah, I think I think we're good. The rest of you humans can stick with your fascist Imperium. Yeah, we're going to go with the." Uh, with the smooth, blue, friendly, greater good people. Yeah, and and not only that, but the Tau Empire in a lot of the in a lot of the law and a lot of the sources also are religiously tolerant. They they let humans in their in their uh, space still worship the emperor and practice imperial creed stuff. Just as long as I mean, I can't remember the name for it. It's off, not off the top of my head, but the same way that the 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 Moors who were in control of Iberia and ostensibly a Muslim uh, or an Islamic um, society allowed religious freedom as long as you paid a certain tax. Mm-hmm. So in that, in that, I don't think it's necessarily the case in the Tao Empire, but like you I think, can... I think in the Genghis Khan's um, Mongol yeah. Empire as well, there was a you know one of the one of the major ex, like explicit rules that you know governed how how people were kind of brought into the empire was that um, you know believe whatever the hell you want as long as you do as i do as i say yeah but that also has its own uh downsides because humans who are in the tau empire uh they transition a lot of them transition from worshiping the emperor towards uh believing in the greater good uh but the problem is because the tau as a species have either depending on which source you look at have either been controlled by the ethereals too, or as a society have developed the idea of the greater good. It's not a religion for them. It's a, you know, it's a, a philosophical and social model. They don't actually mm-hmm. have a religion. Um, but the humans who transition from uh, 
uh, a society in which worship of like a deity, they worship the greater good in in its place. Yeah. So you know their 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 cognitive framework that they have for dealing with this kind of idea is a lens of religion. Yeah, and so that actually that becomes a problem for the Tao in in one of their in their fourth expansion. There've been five. In their fourth one, they capture uh, an imperial vessel and try to reverse engineer its warp engine, which is the the uh, the method through which imperial forces travel between points in space is by traveling through the warp using a warp engine, which envelops them in a safe bubble of real space called the Gela field, yeah, which protects them. So the Tau try to reverse engineer this because the Tau method of uh, the reason why the Tau Empire hasn't got very big is because they don't travel through the warp. They don't have faster than light travel really. They do. A, they sort of use a method where they skim across the across the warp like a well, like like a skipping stone or like uh, those like pond skaters. Um, without actually diving into the wall. So, but they want to be able to move further. So they try to reverse engineer this engine and they tear a hole in, they tear a hole in real, in real uh, in space. When you, when you first started that sentence, I was like, I know this is going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> so they, yeah, the thing is the Tau, as, we, as I said a few moments ago, because they have no real, they're not really psychers. They don't have a, like a religious conscious uh, when it comes to things like emotion and, and things like that, which create, things like Slanesh and the Eldar episode for more explanation on that. Um, they don't do so well when they encounter um, chaos and demons because they live in a very atheistic society, really. And so when they encounter this like eldritch horror and stuff, they it doesn't go well. They're, yeah, they're totally naive to it. Basically. Yeah, they're yeah. extremely naive. And that is also one of the reasons why they're depicted as having no shadow in the warp or that warp creatures and the chaos gods don't really measure the Tao because because they're so idealistic and naive about this kind of stuff and then and believe purely um, all thoughts no vibes yeah exactly so yeah but what happens when they, these demons tear through and they're reverse entering the ship is the Tao are saved by a warp entity uh, which is the greater good personified hmm. because other creatures in the Tao Empire worship, believed it into being believed it into being in the in the immaterium. So the tower, yeah. like, what that's the a, That's a cool little, like, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a literal, literally deus ex machina yeah, vibe yeah. in it, but like, it's a, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a cool. Yeah. But it spooks the tower. It spooks them. Oh, cause completely. they're like, oh shit, people are godifying this. Yeah. Or just that got these things exist. And so they execute every single alien in their fleet. Cool. So long, and thanks for all the help. Yeah, they execute every alien in their in their fleet and bl- blaming them for the the greater good deity and also everything that went wrong. Um, so yeah, that's for those little things that creep in with the tower law that I think is sort of like a, a death by many cuts of the game designers and the law the people who create the law of just trying to like reel it back. So there's things like in the Dawn of War video games, there's like um, minor mentions of concentration camps and re-education camps and things like that. Um, and a lot of like thought, gene editing and stuff like that, which is comes into it. Like, but... yeah, I I understand that you know everything in the Warhammer Forty K universe has to be grim and dark, but I just can't. We just have one nice thing, like you know, having having a you know a a, a relatively nice empire of you know of space socialists. Surely that might serve to contrast and emphasize the grimness and darkness of everything else. 
Yeah. When when everything's grim and dark, it all just kind of it, it loses its impact. Yeah. If everything's dark, then there's no there's no shade. You know? yeah. Exactly. You can't. You know. You need light to to contrast the dark. Exactly. When it comes to like we said earlier, the introduction of the towel, a lot of the reaction from players and fans was they're too nice. Uh, and I think you hit the nail on the head where like basically it made people look a little bit too much at. Uh, I feel bad at killing them because it yeah. ma- makes me f- realize that the Imperium or the Eldar or I thought I know. was playing the good guys. Exactly, yeah. You know, but you're not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash: You got, got skulls on your hats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Tau, Tau, probably in my humble opinion, the mo- one of the most interesting factions. In fact, this episode is probably the most interesting because they're. They're new. Both factions are very newish in the way they approach things, but the Tower especially are, are completely new. They're not based on a, a Warhammer Fantasy yeah. uh, faction or anything like that. Although they are based on a lot of uh, East Asian coded. Yeah, stuff. here we go. Yeah. Let's get to the problematic but, bit. But 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 you know, um, before we get to the problematic <laughs> bit, I want to you know add to your acknowledgement of of how they are such an interesting faction. Um, by their contrast to everything else in the 40k universe also they're the faction that i knew the least about before us having the the conversations that led to the spawning of this podcast um and you know i initially had just written them off as like okay they wanted to put some gundam into 40k and so they made some space japanese people <laughs> um but actually you know from having those conversations with you and and making this episode it is, yeah, I agree. They are an incredibly interesting faction. The Orcs are still my favourite, though. <laughs> but yeah, you can't... Uh, the thing with Warhammer 40k is, uh, in in both the law and in the way you assess the law and you critique it, you can't really have nice things. Um, and you can't help but look at the Tau and see <sighs> some stuff. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll start off with the easiest easiest simplest comparison which everyone when if you look at the towel you look at the way they're portrayed it's very easy uh it's a obvious uh parallel between the towel and the japanese empire from the 20th century in all the media towel usually have asian american accents or asian tinged english accents um Mm -hmm. they use expansion spheres or spheres of expansion the japanese in world war ii called their empire the uh, east asian co-prosperity sphere um, so there's linguistic mirrors there. And, um, you know, you look at some of the um, facial features that the Tau were modelled with, you know, the, like specifically, you know, they, it mentions their eyes. Broad flat and, faces. Yeah, yeah, and their, their kind of uh, almond-shaped eyes and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, and, and for example, um, you know, you have the ethereals with their big sleeves and their hands and oh, their sleeves yeah, in front of their yeah. bodies and stuff. And so, you know, it's, it's, some of it is real mixing of, like, you know, uh, Japanese and other East Asian um, kind of tropes. Yeah, and there's... And then you've got the mecha. Yeah, you've got the, the mecha is obviously a, a fighting robots, drones, blue laser weapons, all that kind of stuff. But then you also have uh, ex- Orientalism with the separation of things into elements. Mm-hmm. Um, very Avatar The Last Airbender and also very sort of... Taoism, Confucianism, that kind of uh, Taoism. In. Yeah, well, that's the next bit as well. Like Tao is a name. Yeah, a sort of a bastardization of Tao or Tao, yeah. which is you know a central tenet of most Asian East Asian um, spiritualities and philosophies. Um, yeah, I, 
It's, I think the, the Tower, one of the most explicitly racially coded 40k races. Yeah, I think even even as a kid, when like, they first came out, I was like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and also, and <laughs> another thing that pops into my head, you know when you, did you ever used to have Plastic Army Men when you were a kid? Oh, the little green yeah, ones. Yeah, little green ones. So I, I wasn't allowed them, but my, my some friends had them. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Uh, I was given a lot of plastic army men when I was little, um, and what and I, in my mind, and I think probably the way they were designed is they evoke different um, factions themselves. So the green army men would often have U.S. uniforms with bazookas; their tanks would look like U.S. tanks. Then you'd have grey army men who would be who look a little bit more like the Wehrmacht from World War Two or something like that. And then you'd have the yellow army men. And that genuinely, the yellow army men whose art, whose whose weapons and helmets and stuff looked a lot like the Japanese Imperial Army from the Second World War. And that brings me on to the fact that of they, all the colours of plastic, they could have made those army men out of. But then that this is what the tying in to something that's literally just hit me in the head is: what's the default colour of Tau armor? Oh shit! It's yellow. Yeah. Oh my god! They made the yellow plastic army men. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> it's just like, and that's what I mean when I like even that's what I mean when I was a kid when Tal first came out. Even then, I was like, oh, so, some little th- yeah. thing was firing in the back of your head. Yeah. This old memory, yeah. And that's but that's and the tomb world of your memory. Yeah, and that's hit me head in the head right now as we record. Just been like, oh shit, their armor's yellow. Oh, like how? <laughs> like whether and obviously we are by no means at any point in this podcast state saying explicitly Games Workshop did this because of that. But yeah, it's it's all it's all thread on the pinboard. Yeah, it's like you sort of think they go hmm. Yeah, it's, you know it's all circumstantial, but they they thing, things things add up. Yeah. So the the and the comparisons don't end there. I mean the the the, the towel rapidly advancing from a state of of the Stone Age. Uh, to uh, hyper technological society is mirrored by the what is called the the Japanese post war economic miracle, where Japan went from being bombed to and what do they say with atomic bombs? They bomb you to the Stone Age. Oh yeah, to yeah. being uh, you know the, basically one of the you know the most technologically advanced nations in the late twentieth century before they had their economic crash. But and, and yeah, and that was characterized very much in like you know the the cliche the stereotype was you know Japan equals robots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then also the tower, as we, we spoke about the crew earlier, the tower arranged army, which fared badly in close combat because of their smaller stature and weaker muscles. <sighs> <laughs> and it's just like like every single point you bring up in isolation, it, you, you can kind of go, ah, but it's it's like it, you know it, you almost expect them to say, oh, and the tower great at maths. Yeah, yeah, it's just um, yeah, it's it's almost like it was written by someone. Who starts a sentence with oh, "I've got no trouble"? Oh, I've got no problem with Japanese people, but yeah, and yeah, it, it's it's again. You take every single little thing in isolation, you can kind of go, eh, but and it's like that sort of. At what point someone could be sat here on the sofa with us, and again, we should acknowledge our own bias in a sort of way. Someone could be sat on the sofa with us and be like, you know, what's the difference between this and, for example, um. What's the word where you're sort of like um, admiration of or that kind of stuff? You know, you know they yeah, might say inspiration that versus a kind of appropriation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, but I think one of the key differences in in how you 
you know, because I think it is totally legit to take inspiration from real world history and real world societies to when you're creating fictional ones. It's almost unavoidable. But I think one of the big distinctions in how you can do it is if you are, I think, if you're if you're if you're taking if you're reproducing existing tropes and stereotypes um, and putting them into your fact, fictional world. I think that's lazy and bad. You know, there, there's so much, there's so much richness from all of these kind of world cultures that get drawn on for this kind of stuff that um, you don't need to just go to the same lazy tropes that have so much kind of problematic baggage on them. Yeah, I think a great example of that that none of our listeners will have experienced is the D and D campaign that uh, you run that I play in. Um, and there is a there is a society in that uh, called Al Maldinat, which you know draws on um, you know uh, a few kind of North African and West uh, and Middle Eastern um, kind of cultural kind of bits of history uh, kind of and 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 inspirations, but it doesn't feel appropriative. And this is said as someone you know with you know Middle Eastern family, Middle Eastern heritage. Um, it doesn't feel appropriative because it it isn't just kind of drawing on those kind of lazy tropes and putting the word sand before something, you know, looking at you, critical role three. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it feels, it feels legit and rich and respectful. Yeah. And, and uh, well, first off, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, I think as well, and, but that is uh, that sort of ties into the fact of like uh, we, well, we're not going to slag on critical role here, but there are things where there's a lot of interaction, especially in the Dungeons and Dragons community now, with including people who um, are consultants for for inclusion, you know, uh, to make sure that different perspectives and viewpoints are uh, represented fairly. Um, Dimension Twenty, shout out to Dimension, I love Dimension Twenty, mm-hmm. is built from the ground up with that uh, in mind, and so. And if, an even example for the creation of this faction that Kinko's just been talking about, I have talked to Kinko and said, you know, how, what do you feel about this? Like, how can I avoid the tropes that will make this feel hammy and, uh, you know, that kind of thing? How can I do this respectfully? And that's an issue when you look at, when you look at the creation of the Tau and also things in Dungeons and Dragons, like Eastern Adventures, Eastern Empires, that kind of thing. It feels like no one's gone to su- to someone from that community and gone, so what's, how can we do this right? If we want to be, if we, I love samurai, I love mecha, I love anime, but how can I create a faction that draws on that without straying into the world of parody and sort of appropriation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and but you know, also sometimes, <clears throat> sorry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's there's an interesting factor here, something that I shared with you when we were doing research for this episode, because it's quite. Again, like I said when we started, it's the easiest parallel is looking at the Japanese Orientalism aspect. Especially because it's very aesthetically... Because it's obvious. (laughs) Because they didn't hide it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, In any way, shape or form. But um, in the research, I found an interview with Gav Thorpe, who's a 40k writer, designer, um, has put together, you know, rules, and he helped put together the Tao when they first came out. And in his interview, he said that the Tao and the greater good... Uh, is actually has basis in late 20th century Western interventionalism uh, based on like NATO, UK, US, that sort of world police kind of thing. 
And in his interview, uh, and I'm reading, uh, quoting here, he said, uh, I've tried not to make it too sinister uh, being within the Tau sphere. Though in the original Apocalypse book, I introduced a variety of NATO-style innocuous three-letter acronym formations like mobilized hunter cadre, dispersed retaliation cadre, and forward commitment contingent. None of them say battle or war, dot, dot, dot. I can imagine the news back home in the Tau Empire is quite a sanitized version of reality. Like when we watched videos of smart bombs and gun cameras blowing up stuff in Iraq, but were totally unaware of what was really happening on the ground. And that is interesting. Although, I kind of feel like there's already a stand-in for, like, uh, Western modern aggression in the 40k universe. Mm. And the kind of propagandized war. And that's the Imperium of Man. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, this is, this is, prob- this is a, a slightly less kind of cartoonish take on it in in some ways which you know might feel yeah I, know, I, I get it but you know let's not forget that Warhammer started off as well 40k started off as this kind of satirical kind of punk thing that was using the 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 over-the-top crazy darkness of the world they created to lampoon the real world yeah so um, it, it feels like you don't you don't need to say the joke again. Yeah, and also, is it satire if people don't get it? It's the uh, it's the the, the it's the ultimate forty k question. Yeah, is it satire if no one gets it? Yeah, because I I sent this to you um, in a, like a couple of week a week or so ago, and both of us when I found it I was surprised, and when I sent it to you you were not you were surprised because mm-hmm. you sort of look at that and you go I can I can see the seeds of that. But you haven't made that explicit. If you wanted to do it, then ham it up. If like, you have to explain the joke, it's not a joke. And I know this isn't a joke, but like if you have to explain the analogy, it's not an analogy. Yeah, and I think there are. I think if you look for it, you can find it in there. And obviously, that that's the uh, the towel while being this uh, idealistic utopian society has these aspects where you can sort of go, well, I think it comes with the territory. And in, in, utopia is utopia because it's, it doesn't. It's, that's impossible. So you'll see. Obviously, you can imagine things like, like he said, like the, uh, the uh, propaganda videos of like, isn't it great to be in the tower? In fact, there are there are characters in in the setting who are imperial guardsmen who produce propaganda videos showing like guardsmen having like holidays in tower worlds and like helping out and like everyone's all smiles and things like that. Um, so you can imagine that, but you can also equally imagine that. With every faction, really, well, the ones who produce pop, but also you know, it is explicitly in like in a, in the in the law in the in the books, um, you know, uh, the imperial war machine, you know, has with it an entire branch of people who are propagandists. It's an entire industry of propagandists who, yeah. you know, report back home to how how the war is going. Um. So, like, yes, you know what what that what Gav Thorpe said there does kind of does make sense, and it is interesting, but it it doesn't feel like it is a new approach for the universe. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's uh, when I I read a lot of maybe it's me being uh, the one small 
smoldering ember of idealism that's in, in, in the seat of my soul that is disappointed when I see things. But when there's a lot of discussion about Tao law in particular on uh, reddits and forums and things like that, there's often quite a lot of pushback of people who are like, no, they're horrible. As in like, stop thinking they're good. They're not good. Here's all the reasons why they're not good. Here's all the reasons why they're an oppressive regime, um, which, ha- you know, and again, pulling at the threads, but it's like a lot of people, you know, say that about things like, uh, the origins of things like Marxism, mm-hmm. where you're like, Marxism could never look at Stalinism. That was horrible. And it was horrible. So Th- Marxism, therefore, yeah, therefore yeah. Marxism is a flawed ideology. And it's like, well, they're not exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with that is they're sort of saying, you know, oh, you had a speck of hope that there could be something nice happening in this universe, but it's not. We have to remind you that collectivism is bad. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, yeah, <laughs> that's. You know. This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think there's there's room for there is room, like we said, in in a universe that's supposed to be universally dark. There is room for the introduction of a faction that has the best intentions, and you play off that. You play off a faction that has to grapple with the idea that the universe is an uncaring, horrible place, uh, that these horrible warp monsters exist that prey on emotions and psychic feelings, and that's interesting because then you go, how does this society? that has set out with the best of intentions and trying goodwill to all humanoids, as long as you believe in peace and collective action and things like that. How does that, how does it change? How does it shape? How does it react to this? Does it push forward? Does it suffer? Does it like change? And does it change to make itself worse rather than going back and, and rewriting from the beginning and saying, Oh, they were always oppressive. Yeah. Show how the the only way that people could cooperate is, through control. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, if you, if you want to do that, then say that they, the, the, the realities of the universe have meant that they've had to adapt and it it's ruined that. But can you, know, cause they're written as adaptive, yeah. adaptable uh, people. Yeah. So that, and that's a more compelling story. Yeah. More compelling than the retcon. Exactly. Um, and it make, and it makes sense within the universe because then it's like it's change as well. Like it's change over the course of time, you know, due to things that you encounter in the environment. That's that's a yeah, like you said, that's a story rather than oh, they've just always been like this. Yeah, exactly. And you can't trust them, you know. Yeah, and there's 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 no better there's no better way to showcase the the grim dark future of the forty first slash second millennium than snuffing out idealism of a nascent empire, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the kind of uh, fall from grace-ish. Like, you know, not, not necessarily grace, but you know what I mean. Because, um, the, 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 you know, there's a, it's a very powerful... If you think about, you know, instead of being an empire, think about it being an individual character. Mm. Like, there's, there's something... It's a very powerful moment, the the loss of innocence. Yeah. You know, when, when optimistic idealism meets the brutality of the world and what effect, what set of effects that can have yeah. in various ways on people. Exactly. Um, <laughs> no, maybe that's expecting too much. <laughs> uh, I, it's I, right. It can always be in the head cannon. Yeah. It'll always be in the head cannon. Uh, I, I think, on that note, we'll finish up the episode there um, because uh, next episode is about how do you create the end of your setting without creating the end of your setting? Yeah, so we've covered the good guys and now we're going to cover 
not really bad guys because they don't really have morality. But we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna cover something. Yeah, <laughs> my 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 second favorite faction. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the unfeeling, uncaring, great devouring entity that's extra planar and is coming to eat everything. Psychic space bugs, baby.